Lord God, we come before you this morning asking that you would do what only you can do. Please illuminate our eyes and our hearts to listen to your word, for we know that it is living and active and brings new life. Help us now to think much of you and little of ourselves. Amen. This morning we will conclude our series in the book of Ruth. I have really enjoyed studying and preparing um, little books like this, especially narratives I get used to and I think I just know everything about it. And then I'm always humbled when the Lord illuminates another layer that I peel back and I just see how much more deep and more rich God's word is than I can possibly conceive. And so as with most things, it is good practice when you're coming to the end of something to turn around and evaluate what you have experienced in it as a whole. It's perhaps a good practice for yourself or if you have a family would be to read a chapter of Ruth each day this week. And as you do, take notes along the way when you see the Lord working for his glory and for the good of his people. And then at the end of the week, take time to pause and reflect on what the Lord has done in your life to bring you to where you are today. And thank him for how he has glorified himself in you. And this will demand from you a humble submission that was all for your good. And for some of us, it is is still hard, but he is still good. As we do this with Ruth, we must admit the book of Ruth is not about Ruth or Boaz or even about Naomi. My hope has been that we see it is about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the times of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the historical narrative we're reading today shows the goodness of God who cares for his own and is working for their good and his glory. And as we will see this morning, as Phil already teased at, he does this by redeeming a people for himself. And isn't this the Christian life? The Lord is good and he is always good. And even when one is walking through the deepest valley with the darkest shadows of death surrounding them, the loss of a husband, the loss of children, pain so heavy that you are hardly able to lift your eyes, he is still good because he cares for you. And we can look around and we can see the beauty of creation, children laughing and playing, flower petals with the morning dew on them, the vast ocean where the whales swim freely. Yet how much more does the Father care for us who are created in His image? Why would we be anxious about tomorrow when the Sovereign Lord is upholding all of us? And it's not that He's just able to care for us. He is willing to care for us. In His goodness... The Lord has a will for all that has, is, and will take place. And it is perfect. In his sheer mercy, he has adopted us as his own children. And now we get to partake in that perfect will, which is to glorify him. And in his love and goodness, as we seek to glorify him with our lives, he will bless us according to that perfect will. So this morning, as we look at our final chapter of Ruth, Ruth 4, 
we will see the Lord ordering and orchestrating all things to bring about this redemption. What began with death and barrenness, the Lord uses to bring about marriage and birth. God redeems. And this is what I want you to see over and over again. For indeed, Jesus is our only hope of redemption. Let's consider this then in the two main points of this chapter. The first half of the chapter 4 is uh, where we're seeing Boaz the Redeemer in verses 1 through 12. And then for our outline, the second point is going to be Boaz marries Ruth, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz marries Ruth, I'm sorry, Boaz the Redeemer, verses 1 through 12. And then Boaz marries Ruth, verses 13 through 22. So let's start with our first point. Boaz, the Redeemer. In the early morning, Ruth and Naomi have just discussed the interaction that had taken place between Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor the night before. Boaz desires to marry Ruth, and in doing so, would redeem the name of Elimelech. However, as he tells Ruth, there is another kinsman who is nearer to the family than Boaz. And so Boaz must see if this other kinsman will bring about redemption for the family. And as you see there at the end of chapter 3, just before you step into the next our chapter this morning, Naomi tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And Boaz, being the worthy man that he is, upholds the promise he made to Ruth, that if he can redeem her, he will. So he leaves the threshing floor in the morning, and makes his way back to the town of Bethlehem. And that brings us now to verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. This scene is set at the gate of Bethlehem, which, as I mentioned in the, in the last chapter we looked at, is really like the town hall. This is where the business of the day uh, is made, but also the decisions are made before the townspeople of Bethlehem. And so it's appropriate then that it's here. Boaz is addressing the kinsman redeemer who is nearer to Ruth than he is. Verse 3, Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz is careful to not presume the relative's response, but he does communicate his own intentions to redeem the land. Should this closer relative choose not to, Boaz has the right or the opportunity to do this. But the Redeemer says he will redeem it. And so we see in verse 5, Boaz, with possibly his heart racing, explains the further stipulations of this act of redemption. Ruth the Moabite will also be acquired because she is the widow of Mahlon, Elimelech's son. One thing we've seen working through this book is that Boaz is a godly man, as we've said, a worthy man, who knows God's law and is obedient to it. 
for us to better understand uh, the, the conversation that is taking place between these two, Boaz and this other relative, and before the ten elders who are witnesses, I want us to read the law of God that he gave the nation Israel concerning this act of redemption. So if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25, because it's there that we are seeing this act of redemption expressly set down. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we'll be starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Verse 6, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Verse eight. Then the elders of this city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Finally, verse 10, and the name of his brother's house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Very normal, right? (laughs) Uh, It is very interesting, and it it is strange to us. Uh, But I don't want us to be so distracted by these sandals and spit and brothers and brothers' husband and the wife and all that's going on there to miss how serious the Lord is about redemption. When studying this, I thought to myself, why doesn't the relative nearer than Boaz just buy the land and then let Boaz marry Ruth? Right. That way they both win. But there's a very important cultural context here that we don't feel the full significance of because our understanding of land is drastically different today. Should the relative have done that and Boaz married Ruth without the land, not only would it be disgraceful of an act by this relative and destroy the, the reputation that he has in Bethlehem, But also, should Boaz and Ruth then go on to have a child, then that child could reclaim the land because Boaz would have redeemed the name of Elimelech. It's not about the the land itself. It's about the name of the house. And I make this point to emphasize that what's taking place here is not just this business transaction. It can kind of feel that way as we're reading it at first. But there's just a contextual weightiness to this redemption. And it's revealing for us something about the God who gave the law in the first place. Earlier in Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, it says that God gives justice to the fatherless and the widow. And loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So this act of redemption given to Israel is a provision given by God to provide that very kind of fatherly care for his people. 
So how is this relative going to respond then? Look back in, in Ruth 4, verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So now that Ruth is part of the, uh, the exchange that would take place, he, he no longer wants to redeem the land. And we're not told why, but for one reason or another, he's unable or he's really unwilling to redeem Ruth. And ultimately, we know that it is the Lord who has providentially caused this to be. We don't have much information on this other relative, so I want to be careful not to be too critical. But I do want us to draw out an application for us from the things that we do know. Neither this relative nor Boaz had to redeem Ruth. They rightly could, but they didn't have to. The other observation is that the author is building a contrast between these two men. The nearer relative is acting more out of what we can observe as self-interest. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. But as we've seen throughout this story, Boaz is very giving of himself. From the world's eyes, Boaz primarily gains land from this redemption. But that is not the goal for Boaz, and we know that. Primarily, his goal is caring for and redeeming Ruth. Boaz is a worthy, godly man, and he is willing to give himself for Ruth. So there are a lot of things that we as Christians do not have to do. But we need to be very careful of the motivation behind whether we do something or not. Because the fruit or the lack of fruit will show itself over time. Our motivation for everything we do must be to love God and to love our neighbor. If it is anything else besides that, we must be very, very aware. Boaz is pursuing something that he does not have to do. But we will soon see how the Lord mightily rewards him for what he does for Ruth and Naomi. Regarding the other relative here, Matthew Henry uses this scene to uh, create a picture and make the point that this is how many people will enter hell. Essentially, they will say, redemption is good. I'm not saying anything against it necessarily, but it's not for me. I don't want to impair my own inheritance in this world. Boaz does the right thing by redeeming Ruth. And his name is in the genealogy of Jesus. We don't even know this other man's name. I hope that inheritance was worth it. The other relative then tells Boaz, take my right of redemption. So Boaz finally can rightly redeem Ruth. And this is exactly what he promised her he would do if he got the chance. So starting in verse 7, the author of Ruth interjects this comment, which I don't want to read over too quickly. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this is the manner of a test. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. This is the author's comment. This is not part of that natural narrative we're reading. So as we're looking at the beautiful tree of the book of Ruth, I want us to pause and step back and consider the whole forest. 
and further marvel at the sovereign hand of the Lord in things far beyond Ruth. It's not just that the author is informing the reader here of the Old Testament law, but we are also seeing the sovereignty of God in giving his word to his people. So that lifetimes later, when a group of God's people are sitting in a church in Jacksonville, Florida, reading the book of Ruth, his perfect word, with all its intended meaning, has been divinely preserved to reveal Christ for our eyes, which was the same intended purpose for that original audience. As we read earlier in Psalm 111, all his word is trustworthy. The significance of the sandal being removed is that it represented uh, their understanding with one another. So that if this other relative ever tries to go back on his word, trying to redeem the land in Ruth, the town of Bethlehem would have treated him as shamefully as if he were to walk around with no shoes on. But it also symbolizes for the Redeemer to show, I have given something, my sandal, so that in a way... Just as much as Boaz holds my sandal, he has the right to redeem Elimelech's name. Boaz was the one in need here. He had to ask for the right of redemption. And it was the relative's thing to give. Again, though, we see the providence of God working in the hearts and circumstances surrounding Boaz and Ruth coming together. We again see the worthiness of Boaz fulfilling the promise of redemption he made to Ruth in chapter 3. And this is done before many witnesses, so that if Boaz is ever questioned on the validity of this act of redemption, he can say, I've got ten witnesses and a sandal that prove I'm right in this. But the elders don't just witness this act. <laughs> it's amazing. They, they then bless Boaz in his endeavor. So look at verse 11. Then all the people who were gathered at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. It's not as if these elders do not know who Ruth is. And they are mere witnesses to some engagement between Boaz and this other relative witnessing their business. But remember back in chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz tells Ruth, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That's these men, these fellow townsmen. Not only do these other men know of Ruth, but they have seen her worthiness. This is a union that they are excited for. And this is revealed in their blessing on Ruth. There's so many rich phrases here, so I want us to take our time looking through these. The elders bless Ruth, who is coming into the house of Boaz. This is a sweet picture, and it's still seen at times today, but it's an ancient custom where the whole wedding, wedding party is gathered outside of the groom's house as he brings his bride through the door of his home. And even here, we are getting a shadow of the glory that is to come. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our groom, and we are waiting for him to bring us home. So as your good shepherd, let Jesus lead you and guide you 
through this world until he brings you through to his home, which is his dwelling place. And this isn't just something that's a relationship between you and Jesus. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. It begins, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before us, before him, endured the, the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is something that we all do together as a church is expressed as we read our covenant together this morning. So if you're sitting there asking yourself, is it worth it? Is forsaking the pleasures of this world and all that it has to offer and being the bride of Jesus who comes and rescues you, is it worth it to be dependent and submit to Jesus to need him? Wouldn't it be better if I were my own and not have to endure suffering for the sake of another? Listen to what one of the angels says to John in Revelation 21. Starting in verse 9, the angel tells John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And later it says, I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So is it worth it to be the bride of Christ? Yes, it is. Look back uh, to the elders then who further their blessing by referring to Rachel and Leah. Like Ruth, both Rachel and Leah were barren. But in Genesis, we read of the Lord opening their wounds. It says in Genesis 29, verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And in chapter 30, verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. What an incredible thing it is then to say of this Moabite woman in placing her name next to the considerable matriarchs of Israel. Rachel and Leah, who the elders here confess, built up the house of Israel. This is specifically seen in uh, in Jacob and Leah's son, Judah, Boaz's ancestor, of whom at the end of Genesis it is prophesied that the scepter shall not depart. Psalm 127, 1 states, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor in vain, those who build it labor in vain. And so we can say, surely the Lord has done this in Boaz and Ruth. The elders continue to bless Boaz, saying, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is a way of saying, May your worthy act of redemption today Cause your name to be remembered. So is Boaz's name remembered? Well, not only are we reading about him, 
But Matthew opens his gospel narrative in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes through a list of names and it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Boaz acts rightly in redeeming Ruth, and we see the Lord reward him greatly for his faithfulness. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are called to turn our desires from the things of this world and towards the Lord God. And this is a weighty calling that requires suffering, but it is worth it. Unlike the rest of the world, our reward will not be in this life. And praise be to God, for our reward is far better than anything this life can offer. A sure inheritance that is waiting for us. A dwelling place with our Savior, seeing him face to face. Be faithful today with what the Lord has called you to. Do not long for the things of this world. They are not from the Father. You will be rewarded. The elders then conclude their blessing on Boaz in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here, Perez and Tamar and Judah are all used to recall the narrative in Genesis 38, which actually, in a way, parallels this story of Ruth. And this is done to emphasize the significance of Boaz and Ruth uniting and coming together in marriage. Interestingly, in the story in Genesis 38, it's characterized by deception and sexual promiscuity. We've seen in the story of Ruth, it being characterized by worthiness and purity. So what are we learning then from these two seemingly opposite narratives that also run along very similarly together? God is sovereign over all things. And he will accomplish his will. The elders are praying that Ruth and Boaz would have a child with the same kind of significance that Judah has in Israel. And these ten witnesses would have utterly collapsed had they known the significance of who Obed's grandson would be for Israel. King David, a man after God's own heart, the one whom the Lord would covenant with in this way. Listen, in 2 Samuel Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that is David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. The hope then that came from Judah, that is prayed for here by these elders over Boaz, that is promised to David, is realized in Christ our Messiah. The hope that was here, that came from Judah, that is prayed for by these elders over Boaz, that is promised to David, is realized in Christ our Messiah. What we are seeing is Boaz and Ruth as one little stream feeding into the tremendous river that is the story of Jesus. 
And so with this in mind, I want us to turn now to our second point and see Boaz marries Ruth and all the good fruits that come from this. Verses 13 through 22, Boaz marries Ruth, starting in in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. First, just notice how uncentral the wedding is. If you if you thought going through this book that all we're working towards is these two uniting, then you're disappointed. Certainly, those not making little of marriage, rather, it is again underscoring the focus of the book of Ruth is not about the main characters we're reading of but of the one to come from them. Everything in Ruth is just an arrow pointing us forward, past it. The verse says, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Wasn't that the prayer of the elders, of the child that would come from this uniting? After ten plus years, Ruth the Moabite is now Ruth. She goes from widow to wife. And from barren to baby. Don't just think that they have a child here because that's what's supposed to happen and it makes for a good ending. Ruth is barren for over 10 years. But like Rachel and Leah, the Lord has mercifully opened her womb. He is building this house. And it is in this house that Ruth finally has rest. Theologian Joel Beakey says, God loves with sovereign freedom, for his redeeming love is expressed in his election of and covenant with his people. God is showing himself to be the merciful, good, and unchanging God. In Boaz redeeming Ruth, we're getting a picture of the hope that the world has in seeking refuge under the shadow of God's wing. He has provided a way for all people and all nations to inherit the blessing promised to the Jews. Ruth gives birth to a son, and it is through this seed that all the nations of the earth are blessed. And this is the last thing we read about Ruth. Notice, she fades into the background. And the story turns back to the one it all began with, Naomi. And we have this lovely, lovely picture of the women of Bethlehem gathered around her as she's holding her grandson and they rightly praise the Lord for what he has done for her. They say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Don't forget that phrase. Redemption for Naomi and Ruth is realized in this son. But redemption for all mankind will be realized in his descendant. They were united to one who was dead, but now that Boaz has redeemed them, they are united with the living. So the question you need to ask yourself, are you uniting yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who provides life? Because apart from him, there is no redemption. The resolution to this narrative is not the happy marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Or the birth of this son, Obed, because as we've already identified, this story is not isolated in itself. It is divinely situated in time as a marker 
along the road to Christ. The resolution, then, is the hope that once again lingers on the horizon for the people of God. One commentator said it in this way, In the dark days of the judges, the foundation is laid for the line that would produce the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer of a lost and destitute humanity. And as we read earlier in Ephesians 1, Christ predestined us for adoption. And in him we have redemption through his blood. By his grace, the forgiveness of our sins. And in him we have obtained an inheritance. I hope you're picking up on the point I'm trying to make. Christ is our Redeemer. Look with me now at verse 15. Speaking of this child, the women say to Naomi, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. A restorer of life. Literally, he who causes life to return. Is that not exactly what we are finding in Christ, our Redeemer? We who are dead in our sins, through Christ, are brought into the newness of life with him. We also see the women identify Ruth as being more to Naomi than seven sons. The number seven here is to symbolize the complete fullness of something. Where Naomi once stated, the Lord has brought me back empty. The women of Bethlehem see Ruth, who clung to Naomi while Orpah returned home. And Ruth, who confessed to Naomi, your God, my God. Her love and loyalty has been better than the fullness of sons Naomi could have ever wanted. The Lord has brought Naomi from losing her husband, losing her sons, trying to glean in the fields of Moab, providing for her daughters-in-law, bitter at the Lord, concerned for how she will provide rest for her beloved daughter-in-law now that they're in Bethlehem, to now where she is sitting, holding her grandson with the women of Bethlehem gathered around her, praying over her. God is jealous for his glory. And he is showing us that Naomi's words back in chapter 1, verse 21, are not true. Naomi said back then, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And we see the Lord patiently and mercifully revealing, even when you spoke ill of me, I loved you. So I believe that Naomi's perspective here has been renewed to where it would now sound something like this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is almighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Do you recognize these words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, from the Gospel of Luke? Mary, who much like Ruth and Naomi, had nothing to offer but humble neediness. And the Lord provides for Mary a man much like Boaz, worthy in character. And he blesses Joseph and Mary in their marriage, though the conception of their child is nothing like the one we're reading of here in Ruth. Verse 17 finally reveals to us what is so special about this child. It reveals to us why the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is given to us. It says, The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The name given here, Obed, means servant of God, which I believe seems so natural for this book, as if the entire story we've read serves us by saying, don't look here at us, look ahead to the one that is to come. This child doesn't just mean redemption for Ruth, but also for Naomi. And as the following genealogy reveals, this child is the means of redemption offered to all of us through Christ. The author concludes Ruth with this genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Genealogies in our Bibles are given so the original readers could trace exactly where they are coming from. And this is a very important part of their lives and also who they are, their identity. And while this is not as important for us today, these genealogies, still inspired by God, serve us and show us that just like Boaz and Ruth, there are men and women throughout history with names and ages and families and jobs that the Lord used to bring about the birth of the God-man. And like all of creation, the Lord is using us today to bring about glory and honor and praise to his name. This is done here each Sunday morning as we gather. And it's also done as we go out in our day-to-day seemingly unimportant moments in our lives. God has called us to be faithful in each of those moments for his glory. This is the chief end of man. When Ruth was bowed down before Boaz back in chapter 2, it was because of the goodness he had showed her. And she was overwhelmed. And he blesses her by praying, The Lord repay you, and a full reward be given to you. This genealogy reveals the Lord does indeed reward Ruth for her faithfulness. One commentator made the point that these ten names listed here not only surround Ruth, but seem to redeem the ten years of her barrenness. That is such a sweet image for us. So as we close the book of Ruth with this theme of redemption, I thought this quote from Ann Dutton was a sweet summation of the picture of God that's painted specifically in this narrative for us. Writing to her parents, she says, Oh, rest your dear souls and your weary heads in the sweet bosom, in the kind arms 
of the Lord your own God. There you will find ease in pain, peace in trouble, security in danger, fullness in need, and life in death. Through life with all its trials and death with all its sorrows, will the Lord your life, your joy, your all be with you. There are no prophets or miracles in this book. And yet we see so clearly the hand of the Lord moving. And this little narrative of Ruth sends significant ripples through the rest of our Bibles. What began with famine and death and barrenness has been mercifully reversed to abundant harvest and marriage and new life. And the glimmer of hope on the horizon beams at the mention of David, the greatest king of Israel. But even a king, after God's own heart, was not able to bring about redemption that was needed for mankind. For indeed, all creation, since the fall of Adam, has been groaning in sin for a better Adam, a better David. One who would sacrifice himself, conquer the grave, and then make all things new. Luke writes in his Gospel, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the reality of our lives today. Just as Ruth was brought, had brought nothing to Boaz but her neediness, all we bring to Christ is our cries for mercy. At the end of our Bibles, God's holy word concludes in this way in Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is your hope this morning. If you have not begged Jesus for mercy, then you remain dead in your sin. But if you confess your sins then he is good and merciful and is faithful and just to forgive you for your sins. And through this act of redemption on the cross, we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. In him, we have salvation and inheritance and rest. So like the women of Bethlehem, let us regularly confess together Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a Redeemer. And this is what we are confessing every time we are approaching the Lord's table, as we will do this morning. Our baptism is a public declaration of our redemption in Christ alone. You have communicated to all who are witnessing that you have repented of your former way of living. And now live in faith and obedience to Christ. The Lord's Supper, then, is a continued testimony of this confession. Here among the local church, it makes known that you are continuing faithfully 
in your pursuit of Christ. So after we pray and sing, we will once again testify together of the redeeming love of Christ for us. Let me pray and then I will call the ushers up for us. Lord God, I thank you for your mercy to redeem us. And I pray for those here who have yet to cry out for mercy. Please work in their hearts. Redeem them by your grace. Amen.